the pain that is all wrapped up and represented within this topic. So if this is a painful trigger for you because you come from a family of divorce or you have been divorced or remarried, please know that I'm gonna do my utmost best, best to approach this topic with nuance, acknowledging some of the pain and the hurt that you have felt. So, hopefully, by the end of the sermon, just, just my introduction, hopefully by the end of the sermon, I'll have addressed all four. But before I do that, I do wanna just acknowledge what does divorce look like in our current cultural moment, okay? So, I like to think I keep relatively up with the news. Um, I do not turn cable news on, that is just asking for a migraine. Um, but I do have a newsletter, a daily newsletter sent to my email inbox. So, uh, I remember in May, I went to my daily newsletter, I read it every morning, and the title caught me off guard. The title was Reopenings, Bill Gates Divorce, and Star Wars Day. And although I wish my major concern was Star Wars Day, because that would have been my preference, I was immediately drawn to Bill Gates' divorce. Because if you don't know, excuse me, I just combined their names. Belinda, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill and Melinda Gates have been married for 27 years. And then just recently announced that they're getting a divorce. Uh, in an NBC article entitled, Bill and Melinda Gates are getting divorced, so are increasing numbers of old Americans. Susan L. Brown writes, divorce among middle-aged and older adults is so popular now that researchers like me have a term for it, gray divorce. I'm like, that's kind of offensive, but nonetheless, gray divorce. Uh, she, she continues to write, she says, this phenomenon, which refers to divorce among people 50 and older, doubled between 1990 and 2010. Nowadays, more than one in four people getting divorced in the U.S. are over the age of 50. Researchers at Bowling Green State University, when studying kind of the reasons for this phenomenon, they found that it's usually not precipitated by one singular event, but rather it has to do with the growing or the drifting apart of individuals. Uh, the increase that I just mentioned above, gray divorce, is not actually just pertaining to those 50 and older. Although many point to a decline in divorce, this has very little to do with divorce rates going down. It actually has much more to do with the decrease in marriage overall and the increase in cohabitation. So don't believe the lie that divorce is decreasing in America. It's not. According to a study done by Sheila Kennedy and Stephen Ruggles in 2014 at Duke University, divorce rates doubled from 1990 to 2008 among persons over the age of 35 generally. These are actually some of the highest divorce rates in all of the United States history. So historically, culturally, and philosophically, we can actually trace the reasons for the rise in divorce, and I'm not gonna get into all of those today, but it is important to know that we have had a significant cultural shift. So it, right after the uh, Civil War, divorce rates were 5%. Okay? Entering into 1964, many people have called the 60s the divorce revolution. Heading into 1964, we were at 36% of all marriages ending in divorce. That was like a 30% increase over 100 years. All of that is to say, in our postmodern society that we live in today, there is a prevailing culture of increased divorce. Not only that, we have settled into a culture of what I would like to call an easy divorce culture. And it may surprise you to know that actually Jesus, in the first century, was living 
in an easy divorce culture that had seeped into the Jewish law of his day. So before we get into our particular passage, I want us to remind us of the three things that we've been keeping in mind during the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated speech, but rather a sermon that exemplifies or personifies the actual very nature of who Jesus is. So Jesus not only says these words, he then lives them out. So we take what the Sermon on the Mount is in context of Jesus' life. The second is this, the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and allegiance to him looks like. So for those of you that are a little bit more practical in the room, and you're like, Jesus told me to enter his kingdom, what does that look like? He actually shows us in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us guidelines. He gives us some rules to follow. And then third, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is the practice of imagination. That is to say that the specific application of Jesus' sermon given in the first century, has to be adjusted to apply to our current cultural moment. I have to have some nuance in this. So two weeks ago, we began our journey with six antithetical statements. Okay, so these are the statements where Jesus said, you have heard it say, but I say. There are six of these, okay, in the Sermon on the Mount. So we first started with anger. So Jesus says, you have heard it say, but I say, in regards to anger. So he takes the concept of do not murder that we see in the Old Testament, and he expands that into do not have seething contempt for another. Do not hold on to your anger for your brother or sister. Then the second statement was on lust, and Alex gave that sermon last week. This idea that do not commit adultery is expanded to our understanding of do not have sexual objectification for another. Do not have that second look. Right? That traces the outline of someone's body. Don't do that. Okay? And so then here, we come to Jesus' third antithetical statement on divorce. And side note, it's not a mistake that lust and anger come before Jesus' discussion on divorce. So we pick up here in verse 31. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In our previous two antithetical statements, Jesus is specifically hearkening back to one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so the do not commit murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, all of those, right? But here, Jesus is not referring to one of the Ten Commandments. So there is no commandment in the Bible that says, get divorced or do not get divorced. Doesn't exist, okay? There is, however, Jewish law and legislation that we find in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that talks about divorce and regulates it within the Jewish culture and the Jewish community. So although the wording here, we're not familiar with it, right? We hear certificate of divorce or bill of divorce, we're like, what, what is Jesus talking about, right? The audience of Jesus in this time would have known exactly what he was saying. So primarily, these are Jewish males that Jesus is talking to at the Sermon on the Mount, and almost all Jewish males had the entirety of the Torah memorized. So the Torah is what we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They have the whole thing memorized in their head. So when Jesus says certificate or bill of divorce, their mind goes immediately to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about. So it's here that we now flip to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, because we, we do not know what Jesus is talking about. So if you would, go with me either in your Bibles or follow along on your phone or on the screen. We're going to read uh, this very obscure passage of Deuteronomy, so uh, bear with me here. If a man marries a woman who becomes 
her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God, who is giving you, that he's giving you as an inheritance. When I read through the scripture, I don't know why, but I automatically just think of like a hairstyle shop and there's like some gospel and it's like, did you hear that she got divorced and she went and she went with this other guy and he got divorced? Did you hear that? That's how I read this. I don't know why. But in all seriousness, this passage obscure, okay? And from the onset, if we're just being honest, when I read this passage, it sounds super misogynistic, right? It sounds really unjust. Let's be honest. But we have to dig much deeper here to see what Moses is saying, right? Because we cannot take our cultural context, superimpose it on first century Jesus or even Mosaic law, okay? So, hang on with me. First of all, we have to understand that this is legislation, not a command. So Moses is not saying get divorced. He's also not saying get married. When we take this in the context, this passage in the context of Jewish law, the Israelite story in Matthew 19, which Jesus actually references this specific passage and expands our understanding of it, we learn that divorce was never God's intention. But rather, Moses permits it because the Israelites had hard hearts and didn't want to bear the full burden of God's holy law that dictated that marriage is to becoming one. Secondly, Moses is actually putting together a set of laws or rules to govern divorce, and here's the key word, in protection of marginalized women. You're like, wait, what? Let me explain. In the world outside of Israel, okay, so the world outside of Israel where Moses is ruling at this time, divorce was happening all the time. Men could demand a divorce for any reasons whatsoever. They just woke up one day and they're like, eh, I said I didn't like her anymore, so I'm going to divorce her, okay? Not only that, women had no recourse to refute divorce. They actually no way of divorcing their husbands or saying, no, don't divorce me. Absolutely no way of doing that, okay? Not only that, when a woman was divorced, she was put in a very low social economic standing. She had very little power to do anything during this time period. Furthermore, men outside of Israel during this day could divorce their women and up to five years later, reclaim them like a piece of property. Okay? So what Moses is doing here, he's, he's saying, uh-uh, no. Because the Israelites wanted to do what everybody else was doing. They wanted to be able to get divorces whenever they wanted to. And they wanted to be able to reclaim their wives without their input whatsoever five years after a divorce. And Moses says, absolutely not. I put my foot down. He says, you cannot marry for any reason. There are parameters. And then secondly, he says, you need to have a certificate or a bill of divorce. And this specifically forced men to relinquish their rights of women so that they were free to remarry. This also kept women from being claimed by their husbands five years later. Women during this time period, if they didn't have the recourse to remarry, they were pretty much forced into prostitution. 
So you know that portion about Rahab in the Bible where we're always like, oh, well, God used a prostitute. He actually used a woman forced into prostitution due to the marginalization placed on her as a result of a careless man's actions. No more than a sex slave. So Moses is speaking out against this easy-divorce culture that surrounds the Israelite people. And he says, we've got to put rules in place here. You can't divorce your wife for any reason, and you have to set her free if you decide you're going to. So Jesus actually references this part of the Old Testament to reinforce Joe, uh, excuse me, Moses' advocation for marginalized women and then to take it even farther. Okay, so he says in verse 31 that we read, whoever divorces his wife, let, her give him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus confirms what Moses said, and then he extends it in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, again, I know this sounds kind of misogynistic. Sounds kind of weird. Sounds sort of unjust. But remember, we have to take this obedience to the Sermon on the Mount as the practice of imagination. So we can't look at what Jesus says, put our cultural context on top of it, and then say Jesus is saying this. No, we have to first examine Jesus' cultural context. We have to derive meaning from it. And then, and only then, can we use our imagination to apply it to today. So, let's examine the context. Examine the context of Mobis. Now we're going to examine the context of Jesus. There was a theological debate uh, that was happening specifically during this time period and technically uh, several years before regarding specifically the interpretation of Moses' phrase, find something indecent about her. So in the Hebrew, the direct translation of that phrase was not super clear cut. And so there were primarily two schools of thought. Okay? And the Pharisees, as evidenced in Matthew 19, are actually forcing Jesus into this debate. They're asking him, which school of thought do you agree with? So, first school of thought is called the school of Shemai. This only allowed divorces in case where moral grounds had been violated. Specifically interpreting Moses' words to primarily have a nakedness connotation. And in the Hebrew, this is a very fair translation because the word that Moses used for indecency has that connotation of nakedness. So this is much more of a conservative understanding and interpretation of what Mosaic law said. And then secondly, you have kind of the two extremes here. You have the school of Hillel that interpreted the phrase, find something indecent about her, to mean anything a man found disagreeable about a woman at all. Okay? So I'm going to give you some quotes. These are actual quotes from the school of Hillel, from rabbis of that day or in the previous uh, century that have been reported in history. We can actually you can go read the original text. The, here are some reasons for divorce. Okay? If a wife burned a food or merely oversalted it, it was grounds for divorce. And the school of Hillel. I'm not kidding. I'm actually not joking. Like in all seriousness, this was like a recorded reason. A man can say, no, I don't like your cooking. I'm divorcing you and forcing you into prostitution. Seriously, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm not making it up. Second one was this, and this one bugs me just as much. There's actually a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Akabai. It's a fun name. Uh, who allowed divorce if the husband saw a woman whose appearance pleased him better. Just like the way she looked better. So Jewish law 
at this time reflected the school of Hillel. So we tend to think of Jewish culture during that day as being very conservative, but on matters of divorce, and specifically women, there was very little law and regulation. And so this is the space that Jesus is stepping into. Okay, Mosaic law found in Deuteronomy 22-24 was obviously restrictive. The heart behind Moses' rules and regulations was on behalf of the marginalized women. And yet, the leaders of the day threw all of that context out to fix every husband's whim or fancy. Some of you might be saying, well, if I was a wife in this moment and my husband wanted to divorce me because I oversalted my food, I would want to divorce from him, right? I mean, like, that's what I thought. I'm like, I would want to divorce from that man. I wouldn't want to be with him anymore. Here's the problem. In the first century, the answer to that question is no. Women would not have wanted to divorce. And here's why. There were three options for divorced women, even in Jesus' time. The first, best case scenario, she would find a relative who would be generous enough usually begrudgingly, because it's another mouth to feed, but generous enough to let her live with them. And she would be treated then a little less than a slave. So her social standing was like maybe this much more than a slave. Was pretty much expected to do anything that the relative wanted her to do. And was at the mercy of quite literally begging for food and shelter. Can't mess up. Can't do anything wrong. If you do, out. Second option was to get married again, to find somebody that would marry her. Here's the issue with that. To be remarried as a woman who had already had a husband, or who was degraded sexually, who was no longer pure, was considered a lower social standing. So to remarry a man, so if a man was like, yeah, hey, you can marry me, that's fine. She was a little more than a sex slave to his desires. Because ultimately, her social standing was that of a sex servant. One that had to commit to any one of a man's whims because he graciously let her remarry. The third option, if nothing else worked, was the life of prostitution because that was the only method of work that women were allowed to do in first century. So women have three options. Become a servant, become a slave sex servant to one man, probably doesn't like her very much, or become a prostitute. And that's the result of the careless man's win. says, I don't like your cooking. They're out. So here, Jesus enters into this debate. And Jesus, rightfully so, fully sides with the school of Shammai. Jesus stands on the side that says, you must have moral grounds for a divorce. He stands on the side of this school because he stands on the side of the marginalized women. In the same spirit of Moses, and this is what I love so much, the same spirit of Moses, he comes to advocate for the marginalized women. Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to extend it, to enlighten it. It's as if Jesus is speaking to his male disciples and saying, how dare you cast aside your wife? because of your contempt towards her cooking, or your sexual desire, or your lust for another. The available options for a divorced woman explain why Jesus says the woman is committing adultery if she remarries, or a man is committing adultery if she marries a woman that has already been married. Because you've effectively forced a woman 
into an unjust life of most likely being some form of a sex slave. If we go to this passage, or its parallels in Mark or Luke, or even in Jesus' further explanation in Matthew 19, hoping to get the do's and don'ts of divorce and remarriage, we have missed the entire point of this passage. Because Jesus was primarily concerned with the irrevocable damage that divorce was doing on women in his day. He was primarily concerned with the evil, the pain, the hurt, and the suffering that was caused by this easy divorce culture. So even though we don't go to this passage to determine whether divorce and remarriage, what the do's and the don'ts of are that, what the exemptions are for that, it does beg the question in our hearts and in our minds, is divorce and remarriage ever justifiable in the eyes of Jesus? And I feel like I would be remiss to not address that because I know that for many of you, that's a real question and a real felt thing that you want answers on. So, very briefly, based on my understanding of scripture, I do believe, along with many religious scholars, pastors, leaders, and thinkers of today, that the answer to this question is yes. That in cases, divorce and even remarriage is at times justifiable. In the words of Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and I just love this quote, chief in Jesus' mind or focus was the fact that women could wind up dead or brutally abused as a result of divorce. The principle applies to today. Better a divorce occur than a life be made unbearable. Along the same lines concerning remarriage, biblical scholar Scott McKnight writes this. Can God's blessing ever rest on a remarriage? One answer to this question surely is this. Is there ever forgiveness of sins in the gospel? The answer to both questions is yes. There can be God's blessing on a second marriage or even a subsequent marriage because yes, there is forgiveness of sins for the sincerely repentant person in the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in his church. So for the sake of brevity, I don't want to spend more time on this particular subject. Um, but what I would encourage you to do if you want to know a little bit more about this topic or any of the passages, the difficult passages we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a great book. It's entitled The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And there's a chapter that actually focuses on this particular subject. So you'd be welcome to check that out. Uh, additionally, if you have more questions about it, uh, Alex and I are always available. Like you said earlier, we like to have hard conversations because we know hard conversations are happening somewhere. So we would love for them to happen here, too. Uh, if you disagree with me, there's room for that. Uh, again, we'd love to speak with you. We can talk through that, because we know that even through disagreements, we can remain friends. But what I do want to do in our last few moments, and worship team, if you do want to go ahead and come up, um, I do want to address the easy divorce culture that we live in today. It's a divorce culture that is very similar to the divorce culture that we find ourselves in in the first century. Because although women aren't being nearly as marginalized now as they were then, the same things, the same effects happen to people every single day due to carelessness or the drifting apart or the contempt that you feel towards a spouse or the lust that you have after another. 
Remember, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is Christ describing what life in the kingdom looks like. So that is to say, Jesus has no desire for divorce in his kingdom. In the words of Dallas Willard, divorce powerfully disrupts one of the major cycles of human existence. Even if divorce is considered justifiable, no one regards divorce as a great experience. I have yet to meet somebody, whether the divorce was justifiable or not, whether they were drifting apart with their Bill and Melinda Gates that said, yeah, divorce process, awesome, so good, it's great, I loved every minute of that. No, right? Jesus would never desire for something like that that caused so much pain, loss, and hurt to be in his kingdom. Likewise, Jesus desires a full life for both a man and a woman who know him and worship him first and foremost, who have entered into a marriage relationship. He desires for them to become one flesh, to reflect the indwelling nature of our triune God. He desires that marriage in the kingdom of Jesus would look like mutual submission for two people being committed thoroughly to one another. To willingly accept or to be lulled into an acceptance of an easy divorce culture is to stand in direct opposition to Jesus and his kingdom and what he desires for us. However, Jesus also does not desire the pain that results from physical, emotional, psychological abuse, pornography, addictions, or affairs in his kingdom. Although our culture in general has embraced ideas of easy divorce, the church, I would argue, has swung the pendulum in a very unhealthy way. Time after time, I've heard stories of the church siding with an abuser for the sake of keeping a marriage together. And I want to publicly say that is not okay. And if that's you, or if you're a result of that in this room, I'm very, very, very sorry. So as I close today, I want to leave us with a spiritual practice, something to do or to think about uh, or to change our behaviors as we move throughout this week. I'm not going to lie. This one was a hard one to come up with a spiritual practice. We do every week, and I was like, man, Lord, you're going to have to help me. Uh, but I do feel like there are primarily three groups that emerge from this sermon. Um, that some different things, different tasks, different things to rethink about or to dwell on over the course of this week. So I'm going to go over three different camps. And I want you to be thinking prayerfully as I say these three different camps, which one you feel like you resonate with the most. And then we're going to spend some time in response uh, as you kick off the response time that you have throughout the rest of this week. So first camp. For those of you who have embraced an easy divorce culture, it's time to rethink your view and understanding of marriage and divorce. Marriage is not easy, yet Jesus calls us to be faithful to one another, to cast aside our contempt and anger for the sake of another, to guard ourselves against lusting after another. Jesus challenges us not to look for escape strategies from our marriage, but to reflect the covenant love in our marriages and our homes, to hold our marriage vows in such high regard 
regardless of the way that we may feel or what has been done to us. It has been said, love is a choice, not an emotion. For those of you in this room, second category, who have been divorced and or remarried, I want you to know that regardless of your situation, whether it was just or it's unjust, Jesus always sides with the marginal, and he is quick to forgive. His arms are wide open, waiting for you, because he loves you desperately, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've gone through. And lastly, for those of you in the room who maybe grew up in church, I think it's safe to say a lot of you have, I've been challenged this week to rethink, right? Remember our first sermon series and Sermon on the Mount? To rethink or repent for the ways, the assumptions, the indifference, or the harshness that I've approached people who have been divorced or remarried. We serve a God who's quick to love and forgive. And at times as a church, I do not think we have been quick to love or forgive when it comes to this listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.